We're continuing our march through the book of James, and we've been talking about how James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem during the first century, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven and gave to us the Great Commission, how he wrote this letter to the Jews that that were scattered throughout the known world of that time, Jewish Christians, Jews who had grown up in the Jewish faith, but then converted to Christianity and at times struggled with some of the ways to make their, their Jewish faith and their new Christian faith kind of fit together. And today I want to talk about this whole idea of faith. And we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And as we've been doing, I kind of want to read that for you so you can kind of get the words in your mind and kind of get a context. And then we're going to kind of zero in and talk about it. So let's take a look at this together. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, he says, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And he gives an example. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see... Somewhere there's a gerbil running, and that's the pitter-patter of its little feet. Did it go away? I bet it's somebody's cell phone. I bet that's what it is. At least it's a fun, happy sound and not like, wah! All right, tell you what we'll do. We'll switch to the wired again. off so it can't bother us anymore. I'll just use this one. All right. So you see, he said, verse 17, is that where we're at? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now remember, this is one of those books of the Bible that Martin Luther himself, the great reformer, really didn't want to see in the Bible because of its emphasis on works along with faith. But again, we're going to take a look at that and see what it means. Because we are not saved by works, we are saved by faith. But James is making a very good point, so let's hear it. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted it counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid the messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. All right. I know that was a long passage. we got to get it kind of all in there. What is faith? 
That is a question that I and, and a lot of the people that I know have been wrestling with for a very long time. Probably since I was in high school, I've been trying to figure out what exactly this faith concept is all about. Because if you really look closely at scripture, the Bible has some really incredible things to say about the concept of faith. Let me share just a few of them with you. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, how many of you as Christians, as followers of God, really would like God to be pleased with you? Raise your hand if that's you this morning. I think it goes without saying that we want God to be pleased with us. Even pagan religions operate on the basis of somehow making their God happy or making their God pleased with them. And the only way they have to do it is by making sacrifices or doing good deeds or all that kind of stuff. Um, we're lucky. We're, we're fortunate in that the Heavenly Father has revealed to us that what he really wants, what makes him happy is relationship with us. But he says specifically that without faith, we can't please God. Matthew 17 says this. Um, this is a situation where Jesus was sending his disciples out two by two to kind of test their faith, to see how they would do, to put into to practice some of the things he'd been teaching them. And as they went out and did ministry, they were able to heal diseases, which was awesome. They were actually able to help those who were oppressed by demons. And so they had a lot of success as they went out and tried kind of their, their faith or tried their ministry without Jesus. But there was one young boy that they could not help. He was oppressed by a demon. And for some reason, the, the disciples couldn't make it go away. They, they, no matter how hard they prayed, no matter how hard they tried, this demon stuck with him. And so they brought him before Jesus. And of course, Jesus told the demon to leave. And it did. Because he's Jesus, right? And the disciples asked him, how come you could do that, but we couldn't? I mean, to me, the answer seems obvious. Because he's Jesus, right? But, but Jesus turned to them and said, not because I'm Jesus. He said, because you didn't have enough, what? Faith. That's pretty incredible. And then Jesus goes on to say, listen, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, I've never personally seen a mustard seed, but I've heard they're very, very small. I'm sure Horrocks probably sells mustard seeds. That's the kind of place where they'd have something weird like that. I should go buy one. Faith the size of a mustard seed. If you have that, Jesus said you could say to this mountain, get up and move over there, and it would do it. Now, I don't know about you, but that intrigues me. It seems to me that faith is kind of the, 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 the grease that makes the wheels go round. Faith is, is kind of like the, the gasoline to the automobile of, of our Christianity. Faith is what makes it work. Am I right? I mean, if you have a car, even if it's a beautiful car, even if it's a powerful car, if there's no gas in the tank, you're not going anywhere. Am I right? How many of you men always get in your wife's car and it never has gas in it? Anybody have that same situation develop? My wife seems to think that gasoline just comes from somewhere out of the blue. She just, she drives it until it's almost out of gas and then she gives me an excuse to drive it and then I have to drive it and put gas in it. Don't you? You do. You know you do, right? She's lying right now. I'm telling you, no, she does occasionally put gas in it. But by and large, most of the time, when it needs gas, I hear about it, right? There, if there's no gas in the tank, you're not going anywhere. And I get the impression from Scripture that faith is that thing. Faith is kind of like the muscle that allows us to push forward, to, to serve God, to do the things that God has called us to do as a part of his people, as a part of his family. And so faith is that, that power that really fuels the ability that we have to move forward in our faith and that inspires us to 
do the things that God would have us do. Without faith, we really have no hope. It is essential to our life with God. And as James encourages these Christians, these Jewish Christians that he's writing to, to grow up in their faith and grow up in their walk with Christ, he teaches them about the nature of faith using three different kinds of faith. And this is what he describes. I kind of want to start at the end and work my way back. So we're going to jump to the end of the passage, and then we're going to work our way backwards. The first one that he describes, I'm going to call dynamic faith. Now, this is the kind of faith that we're all pressing for, that we all want to have, that we all should be striving to to, um, receive. And in order to describe this dynamic faith, he uses the illustration of Abraham and Rahab. And just to remind you, he, he goes basically back to the Old Testament, uses examples that Jews would know about, because these are both people that come out of Jewish history. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, these two characters appear in the Old Testament as a part of the Jews' history. He says, do you not remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? Now listen, Abraham showed faith on a lot of occasions. God came to Abraham out of the blue when he was living in Mesopotamia somewhere. The Bible calls it Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says to Abraham, pick up all your stuff, pick up your family, we're moving. Abraham says where? God says, I'll show you. I don't like that response. I think I've shared that with you before. I like to know where I'm going to end up before I leave. He says, you just follow me and I'll take you there. That took faith. That's not the example he's using, but that took faith. Then when he got to the promised land, God made this promise to Abraham that his descendants would become as as many as the sands on the seashore or as many as the stars in the sky. Now, that's a lot of descendants if you're counting. I mean, nobody can even count that high. And Abraham tried to have a child. He didn't have any children with his wife, Sarah, and he tried to have a child. Finally, he reaches the ripe old age of like 100 or 99 or something like that. Look it up. It's in the Bible. And he still doesn't have a child. And he still, with a little you know, fumble or here along the way, believes that God is going to do it. And so he and Sarah just keep on trying. And sure enough, eventually he has a son, Isaac. And suddenly his faith in God has proved true. And then God asked the unspeakable of him. Now, this is a weird story. I'm just going to warn you. If you're not familiar with biblical history, if you're not uh, familiar with with this whole story, I mean, those of us that grew up hearing it in the church, we kind of listen to the story and go, well, of course this happened. And it's a weird story. It never should have happened. But this is what happened. God came to Abraham, according to what the scripture says, and God said to him, listen, I need to know That you will not withhold anything from me. That everything that you have is mine and that you'll trust me with whatever you have. And so I want you to take your son Isaac and I want you to take all the fixings for a sacrifice. The wood, the fire, the knife, the rope, all of that stuff. And I want you to go a day's journey up into the wilderness, up into the mountain. And I want you to sacrifice your son on the altar to me. Now again, let me make this clear. This is weird. And nowhere in scripture, if you're thinking to yourself, this does not sound like something God would tell somebody to do, I agree with you. Nowhere else in scripture did God ever ask anyone to sacrifice a human being, let alone their own son, ever. Nor did he ever let anyone go through with it. So listen to the rest of the story. So Abraham takes off on his journey, and he starts heading up into the mountain. And, you know, his wife, I'm sure, when he's leaving, well, you don't have a lamb, moron. You forgot the lamb. That's how wives talk to their husbands, isn't it? No, my wife's never called me a moron, in fairness to her. But probably there were questions. Aren't aren't you taking something to sacrifice? The Lord will provide, Abraham said. 
Halfway up there, Isaac says, uh, Dad, <laughs> we've got the rope, we've got the fire, we've got the wood. W where's the sacrifice? God will provide. So they get to the top of the mountain. And I'm, I'm making a very long story short. They get to the top of the mountain, and Abraham, I'm sure, took his time. He would have had to have... I don't know if I could have done it, but he took his son and he strapped him onto the sacrifice and he took the knife and he's getting ready to sacrifice his one and only son. The son that God promised that the promise of God would come through. This son was supposed to be the father of many generations in order to honor the promise of God. And Abraham puts his son on the altar and he raises the knife. And in dramatic fashion... An angel comes and stops his hand. That's how close God cut it. Now, personally, I think God should have stepped in a little sooner for my comfort. How many of you have ever watched a show where you saw the hero going the wrong direction, doing the wrong thing, and the whole time you're going, don't do it! All through this story, I'm screaming in my head, don't do it! There's got to be another, there's got to be a punchline. There's got to be some other way. And as the knife begins to fall, God stops him. And he says something to the effect of, Now I know that even your very own son, whom I gave you, you will not withhold from me. There's no need for you to give him. There's a sheep over there caught in the thicket. Go get that. And God provided, right? And so the Jews would have immediately recognized this story from their history. And they would have said, wow, Abraham had to have faith like no other. And yet he put his faith into action. He didn't just tell God, yes, I'd be willing to sacrifice my son as long as you don't actually ask me to do it. He actually took the actions and he did it. He followed God wherever he went. Well, then from the, 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 the holy to the, the ridiculous, he switches. And the very next example that he gives is Rahab. Guess what Rahab is? She's not a Jew. She's not a forefather of Israel. She's not Abraham, the guy that started the whole Jewish faith and the whole Jewish race. Rahab is a prostitute who lived in a Gentile city. And when the, the children of Israel came up to the promised land and Joshua was finally ready to, to lead them in, he sent two spies into the land to, to look at their fortifications and to bring back a plan of attack. And when the two spies went into the city, the king of the city found out they were there and, and they, were, they were in danger. So they went to Rahab, who, who was a prostitute. And, and some believe she was just an innkeeper and that sometimes the two were one. We don't know. But the scripture says basically that she was a person who was not well respected in the community. And he, these two men went to her and she hid them. And she sent the guards in the wrong direction. She led them out onto a road that nobody else knew about her. Or another way, the Bible says. And basically she saved their lives. And she acted upon what little faith she had in a God that she'd never even met. And because of her faithfulness, when you look at the lineage of Jesus in the first part of Matthew, and you look back at all of the descendants that, that basically are in the line of Jesus, guess who you find in the lineage? One of the only females listed in the lineages of the Bible, Rahab, is there. Isn't that incredible? You are all very unimpressed, I can tell. But you see, when James is writing these things, he's saying, look, there are examples of people putting their faith into action from Abraham, the guy who, who is your idol almost. The, the, the Jews almost worshipped him because of his place in starting their line. But then there's Rahab. 
who's just an inbreed, someone who God took from around the fringes and brought in and made one of his people, and then she became a person of honor, so much so that she appears in the lineage of Jesus. You see, faith being put into action can do some amazing things. And so this first faith that he describes is a dynamic faith. It's a faith that can take someone from their homeland them to a place they don't know about and cause them to be willing to give anything for the faith, for the cause of Christ. It's someone who can take someone who's made a lot of mistakes in their lives, who's living a lifestyle that no one should have to live and and can turn that around and do the right thing and be right where God needs them to be at the right time. Dynamic faith is a faith that inspires us to do the right thing. It's a faith that moves us in the right direction, inspires obedience, and and inspires for relationship with God. Well, then there's a second kind of faith that he talks about. It's a very short verse. It's it's verse 19. He says, "You you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. So he's talking about the head knowledge, you know, the idea that we know God exists. He says, good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. So we're going to call this faith demonic faith. That doesn't sound right, does it? But it starts with D and so do all my other things. So we're going to use that, all right? Dynamic faith, demonic faith. We also might call this a head knowledge kind of faith. The kind of faith that believes in God and yet fear is the result instead of inspiration. He says even the demons believe and they tremble. They fear God, but they have no relationship with God. They avoid him as much as humanly possible. And they don't let their knowledge of him change them in any way, shape, or form. You know who lives under the yoke of this faith, demonic faith, or head knowledge faith? This faith that breeds fear is present in people who know God and know what he wants and know what he expects. But because they love the things of the world so much, they've made a conscious decision. I'm not going to do what God says. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you're, you're talking about all the people out there in the world, right? Maybe. But I think there's an awful lot of them that are right here sitting in the pews of our churches. People who have given a, a, a mental, a, a knowledge, a head knowledge, assent to, to who God is. And they, they say they believe in him and they actually do. But because of the way that they're living their lives, the, the inspiration of their faith is not love, but it's fear. Because they know they're not living the way God would have them live. And because they're not living that way, there is a fear of what he might do if he actually saw them for who they really are. Friends, let me tell you something. If the faith that you have inspires fear instead of peace, then you might be falling prey to this type of faith, which James says, once again, is not the true faith. Finally, he gets to the last kind of faith, or actually his first kind of faith that I kind of put at the end, and he calls it simply dead faith. Um, If you go back to, to the beginning of our passage, He said, what good is it to your brothers and sisters if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? And then he gives an example. He uses an illustration of a person in need that comes into the church and their need is seen. They need food and they need warmth. They need clothing and they need food. And they come into the church and and instead of meeting that need, the person just sends them on our way. And he says, basically, this is dead faith. This is useless faith. When you see the need and you have the capacity to do something about it, but you choose to do nothing instead, he calls that dead faith. 
Well, I mean, the person did do nothing. They did wish them well, right? They said, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. Would any of you do that? If you met somebody in the street who was very obviously hungry, would you say to them, I hope you eat a lot today? You see somebody who's standing out in the cold naked, well, stay warm. How? It's almost like adding insult to injury. And what he's basically saying is, listen, you don't even know the extent of your own foolishness. Because you're looking at a person who's in need and you're wishing them well, knowing full well that you have what they need to do the thing that you're wishing upon them. You could ensure, you personally could ensure that they eat well, but you chose not to. You could ensure that they're clothed because you have clothes and you simply chose not to. You you chose to speak kind words to them that are completely ridiculous instead of actually meeting the need that they had. Friends, dead faith is the kind of faith that sees the need but doesn't do anything about it. It's a faith that looks good on the surface but never actually addresses the problems at hand. I I like to use the analogy, I heard this years ago, that faith is, is like a muscle. You know, and, and I've always, that's always stuck with me. A preacher that I heard in some place sometimes said, faith is like a muscle. If you exercise it, it'll grow. And if you leave it alone, if you just, you know, if you were to take your arm and just leave it hanging, you know, by your body and never use it, you would lose the ability to use that arm. And, and so, you know, I took that to mean that we need to exercise our faith, that we need to use our faith, that only when we push ourselves and, and go out and, and try to learn more. And so, you know what I did? I dove into all the spiritual dif- disciplines. I figured I'm going to be as strong in my faith as I can. So I started reading, you know, all these books on, on developing good habits and knowing the scripture. And of course, I went to a Christian school, so I knew a lot about the Bible. Even as a high schooler graduating, there were some biblical studies professors in my college that actually we had really adult conversations with because I already knew a lot. My school did a good job of teaching me biblical knowledge and prayer. Uh, you know, I got to pray more. I got to pray for an hour a day. That's what so-and-so did. And they're you know, a giant in the face. So now I got to pray an hour a day. How many of you have managed to do an hour a day? I hope none of you raise your hand because I still struggle with that. The moment I close my eyes to pray, you know what happens? I start solving all the problems of the world with my mind. That's just bad. I have to almost walk and keep my eyes open to pray if I really want to talk to God, just to keep my mind focused. But anyway, all of these things, I thought, I've just got to become stronger and stronger and stronger. And as I was thinking about this message, I thought about this whole analogy of the muscles, and and immediately somebody popped into my head. When when you say the word muscle, there's this guy that I know who looks like, you know, Arnold the Barbarian, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. How many of you know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is? Anybody know the Terminator, the big bodybuilder guy, Mr. Olympia, whatever, from the 70s? I'm dating myself now. That's not good. But this guy jumps into my head, and it's Jayla's CrossFit coach. For softball, Jayla does CrossFit with her team, and this guy that leads their CrossFit, he's shorter than, he's about this tall, and the dude is just, like, his thighs are as big as my waist. I mean, the dude is just huge, and he's buff, and he's, he's, he's kind of an amazing guy. And CrossFit is a really, really interesting thing. Well, then as I, I thought about him, I thought about, you know, well, you know, bodybuilders. They're the ones that have the most muscle. And so I started looking up some bodybuilders, and I found a picture of this guy. His name is Ronnie Coleman. Throw that up there, Amy. Is that, that, is that not the most disgusting thing you've ever seen in your life? I don't know. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, yeah. 
Now, this guy is pretty incredible. He was like, he's one of the guys that's known as being one of the best bodybuilders that ever lived. The dude literally got up at 4.30 every morning for 100 years and just lifted things. That's all he did. He started out a football player. He worked out to be a good football player. When he graduated from college, he continued working out while trying to make it as an accountant. Didn't really fare so well at that. So ended up in a gym that made bodybuilders, and people saw his potential, and so they trained him up, and he became this ridiculously huge bodybuilder. There are pictures of him lifting weights that are so heavy that the metal bar is just bending under the weight of this thing. It's amazing. It's incredible. But you know, the, the thing is, bodybuilding, not that I have anything against it. I really don't. And I think it's, it's respectable as a sport. I have nothing against it. Let me just kind of issue that disclaimer. But that guy up there and me have very little in common. He works out, and I'm going to say this and you're all going to laugh, but I work out too. But we work out for two completely different reasons. He works out so that he can flex, right? That's what bodybuilders do. They stand in front of people with almost no clothing on, by the way, and they flex their muscles so that people can look at them and say, ooh, ah, you want to try that once with me? Just say, ooh, you didn't want to. All right, never mind. So anyway, they just look at them and they go, wow, that guy's got the biggest muscles I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. I work out for a different reason. I work out because when I get to 60, I'm not to 50 yet, but I'm almost there. And when I get to 60, I want to still be able to get down on the floor and play with my grandkids. I want to keep my muscles strong and limber enough that I don't end up not being able to do the things that my kids and grandkids want to do with me as I get older. Now, I know I can't go out and play basketball with them, you know, at that age probably, but I can at least still coach. You know, I work out so that when I'm coaching basketball, I get to coach JV again this year. When I'm coaching basketball, I work out so that I don't get out on the floor and make a complete fool of myself by like, you know, pulling a hammy right in the middle of a a very mild drill or something. Some of you know, have you ever experienced that? It's not fun. You just all of a sudden you can't do anything. It's horrible. I work out for the sake of being able to do things. You know, one of my favorite things in the world, you're going to think this is weird, is helping people move. Because it's physical labor, I don't have to think a lot about it, and when you're done, you you can see that you did something. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? If you work with your brain, sometimes physical labor is one of the funnest things you can do. And I love to help people move. Well, a few years ago, when I was in some of the best shape I've been in the last couple years... And, you know, we'd lost a bunch of weight. I was working out every day. All of a sudden, there was this, 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 like, flood of people needing to move. And, like, within three months' time, I helped, like, four people move because I have a big vehicle and I'm a willing soul. That's, that's what had happened. And so I'm helping these people move. There was, like, three or four of them. One was somebody from her work, and the other one was a guy who used to come here who's now passed away. And, you know, I go help them move. And after about the first two, my back started to ache a little. And my wife started saying to me, you need to, keep, you need to be careful. You have a bad back. You shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm in the best shape I've ever been. It's all good. Men, can you identify, right? And so the next person called me up, and she said, don't you dare go help them move. You're going to hurt you. I'm fine. Guess what I did? Went and helped them move. And I broke myself. Hurt myself. My back was aching like crazy. Could hardly do anything. It was horrible. A few weeks later, months later, whatever, I, I got healed up again. Next person calls, I want you to come help me move. This time I got smart. <laughs> I bought a back brace. And it helped a little. But, but my point is this. That guy, Ronnie, he works out 
so that he can look big. I work out because I want to be able to do things. Two completely different reasons. And I think our faith is, is like that. Some of us have a faith that is absolutely incredible. It's ripped, if I could use that terminology. Some of us have faith that is just huge because we've, we've done the disciplines all of our lives. We've attended church. We know all the right lingo. We know all the right jargon. We wear exactly what we're supposed to wear to church. We know when to pray and when not to pray. We know when to stand in the service and when to sit. Of course, that's kind of gone out the window now. We know everything that needs to be done so that we can show the appearance of faith. But then there's others of us that actually put our faith into practice. And sometimes that kind of faith isn't nearly as flashy or as pretty or as fun to look at. Because real faith, when it gets in the trenches and meets needs that people have, gets ugly sometimes. You understand what I'm saying? You don't lift somebody up out of a garbage heap and not get a little garbage on you. You get what I'm saying? You, you don't go down in the depths, in the alleys, in the streets, or the highways, and the byways, and help somebody overcome an addiction without getting a little bit on you. You don't dive into someone's personal life when they're struggling and having difficulty and, and just trying to get things right without spending some time taking some of that on you. It's not fun to look at that kind of faith, but you know what it is? It's true dynamic faith. You see, James is all about people living their faith. And I, I don't know what kind of faith you have today. Maybe some of you are literally living embodiments of that dynamic faith where you not only know everything good, you not only ha have a good prayer life, you not only know all the right things and do all the right things, but maybe you're actually one of those people that when you see a need and you have the ability to meet it, you jump right in and you do it. And you know what? If that's you, I praise God for you. And you know what the church needs you to do? We need you to reproduce yourselves. We need you to invest in the lives of other people so that they can see real faith in action. Because sometimes when people look for examples in the church, they look for the people who are buff, but they aren't necessarily looking for the people that are meeting the needs of the people around them. So if you're one of those people who has a dynamic faith that inspires you to not only meet the needs around you, but also inspires you to go deeper in your relationship with Christ, we need you to become a, a discipler of other people. I'm a grandparent now. I have created a human being that created another human being. We need spiritual grandparents who can disciple other Christians so that they can in turn disciple other Christians. If you have a dynamic faith and are living that out, we need you to disciple those who are younger than you in the faith. If you are one of those people that, that maybe is living that demonic faith or that faith that inspires fear, if you're living in fear because you honestly have no intention of following God, maybe you're here just because you've always been here. But your lifestyle is such that you love this world so much you're just never going to change. Maybe you play the part. But secretly, you love the sin in your life, and you just want to keep going. I want you to listen to me for a minute. If you want to be free from that fear that comes, you need to find a way to start investing yourself in the lives of those who have needs around you. Because I believe that only then will you find the peace and the relief from that fear that you're feeling and be able to overcome the sin that is plaguing your life. But of course, you have to want to do it first. If you're one of those people that's living what James calls that, that dead faith. And again, maybe you're ripped spiritually. Maybe you know all that, that there is to know about the Bible. 
Maybe you pray for an hour a day without even batting an eye. Maybe you sing louder than everybody else, and you even know the third verses of the old hymns. Amen? Nobody got that at all. Maybe you are a spiritual giant, and you look like that bodybuilder spiritually. But maybe you've never gotten to the place where you're willing to act on the faith that you have. Listen, being strong is good, but it's only good if that strength leads you to serve and to grow closer in your relationship with God. So if that's you today, then I, again, challenge you and encourage you to take that faith and to look for those around you that have needs. Because I believe we should all be more like Jayla's coach, the CrossFit coach. Because you know what CrossFit guys do? After they get buff, they go and do stuff. Their competitions are running, jumping, lifting, climbing. They do all kinds of active physical stuff. Bodybuilders don't. They lift. And you know what has happened to poor uh, Ronald? Is that his name? I forgot his name already. That's terrible. Ronnie Coleman. He's now had surgery after surgery after surgery. He takes more pain pills in a day. Most of the, if, if we took the amount of pain pills he takes in a day, it would kill an average person. From all of the years of just lifting to be seen, he's destroyed his spine. He's destroyed his hips. Every part of his body just about has had surgery, and yet he still is addicted to it. He goes every morning, 4.30 in the morning, and lifts against doctor's orders. Because he can't stand to not look like the person that he's always been. Listen, I believe God wants CrossFit kind of Christians who can actually do the work. He doesn't want bodybuilder kind of Christians who just look the part. I know the hour's late. Let's pray together. God, I thank you this morning for giving us yet another glimpse into what James was thinking and and what the church of his time was dealing with. And they obviously were struggling with the faith that had trouble growing legs. Let's just say it that way. They were Christians that, that, that called upon your name, that believed in you, that, that had followed you and trusted you for their salvation. But Lord, they had trouble putting feet to their faith. They had trouble living out the things that they knew to be true. And obviously they had trouble seeing the needs of of brothers and sisters in Christ that needed them and being willing to meet those needs. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be that kind of church and not to be that kind of Christians. Help us to open our eyes and see the needs around us and be willing to do what we can to meet those needs. Lord, we know that, that we can't meet every need of every person that we see. But Lord, as much as is in our power, Help us to be willing to put faith where our mouth is and and really reach out to those who have needs in our community and in our country and in our families and do our very best to, to exercise our faith in a way that helps them to find you. We know that that truly is a dynamic faith that will lead us forward. What faith Abraham had to follow you all those many years of his life And what an incredible thing that even Rahab found faith in in a moment's decision to to help two spies that that she for some reason side. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that kind of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, turn to your neighbor real quick and say, have faith, and then you can be dismissed.